I'd just like to let everybody know before we start the podcast, there may be the odd swear word during fighting on the inside. Also, some of the subjects that we cover, especially those surrounding mental health, some people may be affected by these conversations. If you are, then you can find information and help in the show notes. But please, other than that, enjoy the show. So another massive shout out to our big sponsor, Mangata. Any companies or small businesses, large businesses out there looking for payroll, look no further. With 20 years of UK and global payroll experience, you'll be incredibly good hands. They've got very competitive margins and very, very easy to set up for agencies and candidates. And once a candidate has been referred, they will be contacted within 30 minutes. You really can't ask for much more. So you know what to do. Go down to the description, click on their website to check them out. It's mangatapayuk.com. And thank you so much to Mangata for sponsoring this podcast. everybody and welcome to another episode of fighting on the inside as always i want to say thank you to our sponsors mangata well hydrate real power of one without these guys we could not do what we're doing and as you all know this podcast is in aid of anti-knife crime charity gloves up knives down aiding them in their fight against knife crime in the uk right i've got to say i'm nervous <laughs> and excited for this one because we have an absolute legend in the building we have mr levi roots um I mean, listen, I watched the episode on Dragon's Den when you went on there, so I know you massively from Reggae Reggae Source, Levi. Awesome to have you here, honestly. Um, I hear you're a huge boxing fan. That's why we've got you on today. Yeah. And I hear you've got an incredible, incredible story. Um, and it involves a lot of fighting. Um, not physically, but, you know, in, and in some. every sense. <laughs> and so, well, and some of that. We'll hear all about that. But yeah, how are you? How are you today, mate? I'm good. I'm good. I've I've come in fresh from Brixton, as they say, that the heartbeat of the community. Are yes. you still living down in Brixton? I do. I I, I do think you you've got to be grounded, and I think that that place helps me to be grounded, man. You never forget where you are. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was like a little school kid. You walked in with your Oswald bow tank suit. I'm like, I love my suits. I yes, this yeah, guy. you are looking fly. <laughs> yeah, it, look, <laughs> it looks, looks flying. Yeah. Was it 17 years? 17 years? 17 years ago. 17 years. Two, 2000. Well, I launched it at the carnival at the Nottingham Carnival 2006. Oh, really? That was the first time I actually put the label on the on, on the bottle and gave it the name reggae reggae sauce even though we'd been selling it for years before but to actually give it the name and write the song about it that that happened in 2006 was it a, a, a mini success before you launched it it was a fantastic success so, but so it, local people knew, but nationally they yeah didn't. local people actually hated it because they drove me out of town Johnny. they did they did i i when we first did the sauce we thought great you know i live in a caribbean community of brixton we thought fantastic we're doing a caribbean product great they're gonna love us we, we thought the market belonged to us we did our first batch i remember spending everything that we had as a family to do that first batch of sauce and went out to the local in brixton and peckham and places where caribbean is and everybody tell me say levi was go away with your sauce so you, you're selling us sauce sell us your music don't sell us your bloody sauce because we all make our sauces at home Mm -hmm. 
Some people were saying that they can even bloody make a better sauce than I was. So it was it was a massive kick in the teeth for you me. That was coming from my market. own. Yes. And from your own community as well, yeah. Westenia. But really they were saying that you need to perhaps go out and find your own market. And that's when I I remember going to and saying to my mom that I'm not going anywhere that doesn't have Shire at the name at the end of it. Because yeah, I right. thought no black man with no <laughs> guitar is not in them places in the Shires. Yeah. So for all year, Johnny, we went into the Shires with it. You know, wherever there was a nice lovely country fate in some nice country village in in north yorkshire yeah. and steeton up and stilton and the, these lovely places i would turn up with my guitar and the sauce and and that's where the real success for for reggae reggae sauce started was this all pre-dragons then was this when you went around with your guitar sort of yeah I, this sort absolutely because I, I i learned the lesson that you don't have a right for a market mm. you maybe have to go out and find your way in in life and it's going out into the shires and doing that one year of really even suffering some massive knockback in the shires as well because those people perhaps hadn't seen a character like myself in, in these sort of places. and um, But it was learning from it and, and realizing that they weren't just buying the product. They were buying Levi Roots as well. So but now Levi Roots is a, is a household name here in the UK. So before, name, yeah. before Dragon's Den, were you like a, a mini celebrity in, in your area? In yes, London, in yes, through, through music. Yeah. And that's why they were saying to me when I first did the source, sell us your music Stick because your we music. know you for that. You know, I was a mobile nominated artist. My album Free Your Mind was a, a massive hit back mm. in the day. I was a member of the great Sir Coxon Outer National Sound System, mm. which, as we know, sound system is a massive part of music culture. And that's where my name was big. So people were a bit shocked when they see all of a sudden uh, I was, instead of singing roots and culture music, I was saying, put some music in my food for me yeah. give me some reggae reggae song and they thought oh come on levi you know, which one, which a little bit wet. <laughs> which one's your passion which one because we'll we'll, we'll yeah well, I'm always asked that, I think, you know, would I take the bottle of sauce or my guitar and that journey that, that you go on? But I think the music is the inspiration. Without the guitar and, and, and me going on Dragon's Den as the performer, I think I wouldn't be here right now. So I, I do think that the music is perhaps, you know, where, where my heartbeat really is. Right, Levi, just yeah. before we get back into your full, uh, you know, what's made you Levi Roots and, and the source and the music and the uh, and, the, and all of that story, because you've got an incredible, incredible story that I've heard. Um, you're a massive boxing fan. Yeah. This is a big boxing yeah. podcast. Can Absolutely. we just get your, your, you know, what makes you a boxing fan? What attracts you to the sport of boxing? I suppose it's the warrior side, isn't it? Is it's that growing up in, in the days when boxers were real warriors, that you had to learn this trade. You had to be somebody who were born for it. Otherwise you get found out. And that was really what brought me into it because boxers in my days, they were real gladiators. You know, I'm talking, I'm going back for the days of Ernie Shavers and Muhammad yeah, Ali yeah, and people yeah. like that. You know, th those were my inspiration within, within boxing. So I suppose that's how I, I, I wanted to be a gladiator when I grew up. Maybe not through boxing, because I think cricket was more me when I was growing up. I think Gary Sobers and Gavin Kalicharan and these great names in West Indian cricket was more of a pull for me. But boxing was always the second choice for any kid that was growing up in the Caribbean at, at those age, and, and even in my teenage years. I think that pull of the story of Muhammad Ali, that you know, mm. this was a man that it wasn't just about his boxing. I think the world was looking at his boxing. But for us as a community, especially for black community and young black boys, we were looking at a different side of Muhammad Ali. We were looking at the side that he was using to make that connection 
that it wasn't just about this boxing kill, but it was also about him as a person and the message that he was putting across at the time because there was nobody else that was being brave enough you know, to be expressing himself as our Muhammad, he was expressing himself about blackness and about who you are. So as a black child in those days, we latched onto every word that he said. And I remember when he came to Brixton, actually, and how people was just really just like God had arrived when he came mm. to our, lo our locality. So, yeah, I think he perhaps was my biggest inspiration. You, you, gave us, you gave me a great analogy initially when it came to your business your set as, as, as in the rigor rigor sauce you, you mentioned Darlene yeah. Darlene was years and you caught on to it but you, when fighters should be catching on to it now you are your product you're your business so Ali boxed but but that he wasn't a boxing that made yeah, him who he absolutely. was it was the person around it your source is 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 is, yeah. is your source but it's it's made around you absolutely absolutely and, and again this was the inspiration that he brought because it wasn't just about his boxing or about the man himself and I suppose when I came onto the scene I didn't want to sell just reggae reggae sauce. I wanted people to buy into who I was. And I remember when I first asked to go on the show, people were saying to me, don't sing, you know, don't take the guitar. I, I had about a week of window before I, I got onto Dragon's Den. And I went around to everybody that I knew and said, that, you know, I, I've got this great opportunity. I'm going to this show. Shall I do it? Everybody says, yes, Levi, go on the show, but don't take that damn guitar. Ah. Don't sing that song. <laughs> it's not X Factor. And I had it all of, you know, from everybody. But you know, Johnny, I wanted to be me. I thought it's easier when you're you. Mm -hmm. It's more difficult when you pretend to be somebody else. So I really wanted to take the guitar on there, and I think it's a blessing that I did listen to my own. Self. Let's rewind a little bit. Did did you actually? But did you actually have a got boxing? Did you actually get the gloves on? Did you yeah, actually get I in did. The ring? I did. I remember. I did. I had a friend who was was really into it. I, I, there was a, a twin that was living in Hernhill. I can't remember their, their names right now, but they actually went to my school in Tulsa. And we all saw them as our hero, as our local hero. And, and they did, had a boxing, a sort of a boxing sort of get together in school every, every now and again. And we would all watch them, you know, you know, around the back of the shed, yeah, yeah, yeah. two brothers having a go at each other. So they were a massive inspiration to me. And I did have a go at, at I think it was down in the Shepherds Club in Brixton and, and, and Cole Arbor Lane that I first put on, ever put on a gloves. But as I said, the music and cricket was more of a pull for me, for me to actually get engaged. But boxing became something, as we all did, that inspired all of us. And I, I think Lennox Lewis is another person who inspired me big time as a, as a Jamaican child. Mm -hmm. I, I Chris? Think Chris Eubanks also. Um, he's become a friend of mine. We've done a lot of TV shows together as well, and I got to understand the person, which I couldn't understand him before, but me to be person, it, I got to understand the person. It's very different. The Chris you see on TV, when you get on a one-on-one Absolutely one different person when you yeah. get to know him. And it was that person that I got to knew much later on in life that I really got to like, um, the Chris Eubanks that I got to knew personally. Hello, everyone. So, for those of you that may have noticed how good myself and Johnny have been looking throughout this podcast, that's because we are donning real. Now, they produce high-performance sportswear inspired by boxers. Boxing is as much mental as it is physical, and real believe that it's the combination of physical and mental strength. That is where your performance potential lies. Unify body and mind to realize the power of one. Real fights for enhanced mental well-being. So whether you're a seasoned boxer or new to the sport, Real will empower you to test your limits. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Real Power of One, and you can find their store and their newsletter over on realpowerofone.com.
Com. And take it from me, this genuinely is some of the most comfortable and high quality sportswear that I have ever worn. So it's realpowerofone.com for sportswear inspired by boxers. And thank you so much to Real for sponsoring this podcast. That's amazing. It really sounds like you've got a really deep connection with boxing, especially from when you say that it inspired you and the people that did it inspired you with their fight inside the ring, but also with like people like Muhammad Ali with their fight outside the ring. Um, let's learn a little bit about the Levi Roots and your fight. Um, where did where did it all start for you? What was growing up in Jamaica like and how was your childhood? Yeah, I, I suppose I can class myself as a Windrush child. Um, I was part of that generation that was coming over from the Caribbean on the Windrush ship uh, from 1948 around to about 1970. Mm -hmm. um, if you were on that ship or you're connected in somewhere, then you are a Windrush child. I came in 1975, so I fitted just within that. My parents was one of these heroes that, you know, when the British public had sent the news to the Caribbean that there was gold dust on the ground to be picked up here <laughs> after the war. People yes. don't believe that. That's it's stuff, true. It's truth. absolutely yeah. true. The country was in the state after the war. This message was coming through. Literally, you could pick up gold dust. And my parents, like wow. many others in the Caribbean, thought, oh, well, we'll, go and pick, we'll yeah. go and pick up some gold dust and send for our families and, and give our families a better life. And my parents, you know, left and, and come to the UK work four, five, six jobs and realized that the gold dust was actually dog shit. <laughs> and, and they had to pick it up, which they did. They did a fantastic job because I, I see these people as the greatest entrepreneur heroes for, for, for Caribbean people. The first set that came to set that foundation for us and to did all these menial jobs And it was a then. brave move. It was absolutely brave because they left the kids back home, mm -hmm. you know, just like my family. You know, my parents left five of us back home and the grandmothers play a great part because they had to look after it and every year the parents would send a ticket over bring your child over bring the child over yeah. one at a time they would go and every year I would see my grandma in tears on my left and I would look on my right and I would see a brown suitcase mm -hmm. in those days we called it a grip yeah, yeah, and yeah. we would see a grip on the right and I knew granny in tears grip one of us is leaving <laughs> but being the youngest I didn't actually equate that one day is going to be my turn and i fell in love with this wonderful woman my grandma didn't know mom and dad because they left when i was about four or five wow. so really my grandma was everything and she was teaching me about and, and, food and, and stuff yeah and culturally that is how it was that's how that's my how parents was. were yeah yeah you know, that, that's it you, you probably loved your grandparents they were more heroes than they mom. were mom and dad and the <clears throat> yeah. cat and the dog and everything in in one she was teaching me about food and about cooking she wasn't particularly educated herself my granny but she was a fantastic cook she could make these great sauces and these relishes and and that's how she educated me um having not going to school because all the money then spent on the elder kids mm -hmm. because the parent wanted that when they came to this new world they was often running fast into school Levi, was there no resentment because you were the last one so you're thinking how come they all good, going to see that's a good question there johnny and it's a really good one and I, I wish somebody had asked me you know <laughs> but mm. the children don't get a chance to be asked do you want to go you can imagine being left with this woman, you know, who was everything to me, you know, my, my granny. It's like being uprooted. If I was asked then at the age of 11, do I want to stay or do I want to? Absolutely, I would want to stay with her. But really, it was her education with the sauces and the cooking and everything that drove me when I eventually came to the UK and couldn't identify with anything because uh, I was at the point where I, I literally was going into a mental state. Um, avid miss her and this beautiful place of Clarendon. What was your biggest struggle once you came to the UK? 
racism was a part of it because from not having it at all from not having it at all and didn't understand didn't even hear about that didn't you know you'd come out of school and you would turn right and it would be nice and lovely it'd be these nice lovely white kids that want to hug you up they want to know about reggae music and ska was around at the time and they love ska and you were black and they love the food and everything and it was brilliant that's when you turn right but you turn fucking left. <laughs> this this wasn't the fashions guy. This was the fascist guys. <laughs> you know, the guys on the right were about fashion and stuff. Yeah. But you learned the quick that the left is fascist, mm. and these guys want to rip your bloody head off. And and me coming from not understanding it at all, or it was a hard one to take. It was really hard. And and but you learned to fight back, which perhaps was the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. But but as a young child growing up back then. Parents and adults don't understand that you have to fight back in, in that kind of situation. And so we learned to fight back and, and got to understand what racism was. But to answer your question, I think that was the most difficult thing for me to to, to take coming from leafy Clarendon where it's just mm-hmm. sugar beautiful, cane and beautiful. mango trees. <clears throat> and for a 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy, it was the most beautiful experience to be growing up in that. And then to, to come to a like a, a war zone. Where Did people, you come straight to Brixton? Straight to Brixton I, where people are ripping each other heads off because of colorism and that kind of stuff like that. It, it was difficult. So there was no, I mean, uh, growing up in in rural Jamaica, there was there was no sort of conflict on the streets for you as a child. There, it Absolutely. all started. You when didn't you notice it. For instance, and I tell you this now, we had a white person in our family. Mm. We didn't see him as white. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Butler is part of our family, mm-hmm. you know, and he was always there. As a matter of fact, I grew up being because he was blind. He was a bit blind, and his knees were he was an old man in the family. And and nine and ten, I was the one that tended to him. I never saw this man. I didn't understand white, black. I just knew Mr. Butler as part mm. of our family and, and he was there. And it wasn't until when I arrived and I saw, when I arrived in the UK and I saw that difference of what color is and, and, and what the problem is, that I really got to understand that um, of what it is about. But, but still couldn't understand that why didn't I see Mr. Butler as you know, right. as our people saw, well, maybe a different. massive <clears throat> influence would have been the discipline, the respect of your your, your grandparents and your parents. Um, that would have had a, a, a massive that, a, a massive grounding for you. You know, when all these things are going on in, in the streets, you know when you go yeah, home. Yeah, because it was be never in. discussed. Yeah. You know, it, it was never discussed in the family. And and you know, we use the term yardy now in a most negative way, but I, I think in the real terms of the word, it's actually a safe haven because a yard is how you grow up. You know that yeah. saying about a village brings up a child. Mm-hmm. In, in in my day, it was within the yard and within the yard, you didn't just have mom and dad. You had mom, dad, grandma, and, and the whole sort of Mr. Smith ex- ex- Mr. extension of the, the family right, yeah. within, within the yard. So that thing about a village bringing up a child, that's how we were brought up. And it was with one voice. So whatever everybody says, everybody else says. So if you didn't talk about these negative things and, and who were what, then the kids didn't really hear about it and it wasn't until when he hit me here that i realized so how old were you when you when you moved to brixton then sorry as a child i was 11 yeah 11. i went straight into school and in, into into tollsville secondary school oh. i couldn't spell my first name mm. only had five wow. letters um really difficult as i said you know I, I tried to to do the right things but wanted to be cool at the same time because as a as a boy going into secondary school you can either be cool with the lads or you can be the wimp that everybody else picks on. Mm-hmm. Of course, I didn't want to do that. So I, I wanted to be the cool kid. 
wrong thing to do. And I think that's where the spiral down started from, from within school of trying to fit in um, because I didn't fit in in the first place. So tell us a little bit about that then in your teenage years. Did you end up getting into trouble and what, what, sort, what was life for you growing up through your teenage years and into sort of a young adult? Well, I left school really good. I, I left school and did the right thing for your parents like any parents would. I started off as an engineer. My brother got me a job at a, a firm called Selby Engineering. My mom and dad was just absolutely over the moon, mm. as you can imagine. You start out that way, it's fantastic. But, you know, music <laughs> was a massive pull for me. I think I, I couldn't resist it, you know. Um, it was a thing that wanted to run away to join the circus in, in that kind of analogy. And that circus was a sound system called Sir Coxon that was local in Brixton at the time. And, and I think if you're a kid and you love reggae, sound system was a pull, was a massive pull for you to, to, to join a sound system and be able to get involved with your passion of music. And it was the, the, the pull of Sir Cox's sound that drew me away from my engineering job. At, at what point did it become a full-time? Straight away. Really? Straight away. I met Festus, the selector for Sir Coxon, on a Thursday when I went to sign on at the, um, at the old signing on yeah. <laughs> office in Brixton. I met Festus and he asked me if I wanted to come along in the, in the back of this Coxon truck. In those days, the box boys yeah, yeah. were the boys who carried the boxes and you had to get in the back of the truck to get to the dance. And I believe that, you know, in, in 1977 it was. Um, I remember because Culture had a tune called What Ali Bam Bam Baye When the Two Sevens Clash. It was that year yeah. I, I joined Coxon. And I remember vividly, and I still think I'm in the back of that van now because it, my musical career with the sound system has been so inspirational to me. I, you know, I'll never, I'll, I'll never diss that part of my life. And it your is parents? One my parents, yes. Um, my were, dad. Were they cool with it? Well, my, my, I had a really tumultuous time with my dad. Um, I, I don't think he could understand the fact that I, I was the youngest, but yet I was the most illiterate of his children um, because having never gone to school and when I came over as a bit of this boy coming straight from the country and where he had felt that he was a bit now, can I use the word gentrified, mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a black man coming now and learning within the UK and, and all his other children are educating and then all of a sudden here I was coming over at 11, 12 and, and can't spell my first name and, and can't count to 20, uh, you know, whatever. And, and he's, he struggled with that. Um, and, and I think that led me even further down, you know, spiraling down, not having that, that inspirational father, as I think all kid, kids did, and not having somebody to kind of help you to lead you on the straight and, and narrow. Um, but my mom, on the other end, you know, she was, a, she was always a rock to me, but I don't think it was enough to, to, to stop me as, as try as she did you know and she did try a bloody lot but it wasn't it was i think i needed a father to stop me spiraling down even further how, how bad did bad get <clears throat> the judge when i ended up in front of the judge on one day in in july 1986 he looked at me and says mr graham you are the scourge of the community mm. and i'm gonna sentence you to nine years in prison 1986 all my friends everyone thought i'm never going to come back from this even i gave, nearly gave up on my own self i'd never been to real big man prison before 
never even crossed my mind. I, I was never a criminal. I was just always a man. If anything, I just sell the odd bag of weed and mm -hmm. think, but music was, was the thing for me. But it was that spiraling down that, you know, you can't find anywhere to hang your hat or to grab onto when you're spiraling down. There's nothing to catch you. And, and it was just slippery. And I was actually going there. So that nine years was, was where I had to find myself, John. How, how long did you actually do? Yeah, did you do? I did five out of the nine. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that I wasn't me after all. I think I went in as Keith Graham, which is my real name. I'm who my, my father gave me that name, which I struggled with. Um, and I wanted to change. I wanted to be Levi Roots. The name I'd given myself that when I found out that Keith Graham was bloody Scottish, and I used to look in the mirror and thinking, I don't look fucking Scottish. <laughs> Something's happening here. Why have I got this name? And, and wanted to change it. I wanted to go on stage to be called, ladies and gentlemen, introducing, not Keith, but introducing Levi Roots. And, and, and that's where I found myself. So when I, when I got my sentence, I realized that this has given me the time to become the true me, the person who I really feel and want to be. And I, I use that five years to make that, not change, I like to call it a, a metamorphosis. So you did the time, the time didn't do you. Absolutely. And, and you have to make that change yourself um, and make decisions. And the first one really is to be honest with yourself, is to strip yourself bare and, and, and to look, hover above yourself and look at yourself, but look at your mistakes. But, but don't reject your mistakes, that's important. What I did was brought my mistakes on board and rebranded them as feedback mm -hmm. so when i was coming out now i'd look back and everything that i did wrong and thought that you know what i now know where to go wrong i'm not going to go looking for the money mm -hmm. i'm going looking for how to use the money so that when i'm so lucky to get the fucking money i'll be able to know how to make that thing and that's how i came out and i haven't looked back since then see you talk about um, a completely change in yourself. You talk about a rebranding. Tell me about Levi Roots. Why Why that name? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was searching for myself then, I says, you know, trying to find who you are and, and why my dad give me this name and all that kind of stuff. Rastafari was a massive thing in those days. Bob Marley was a hero to all of us because he was singing, not what everybody else was singing. They were singing about, I love you, you love me, my girlfriend, this and that. But Bob Marley was coming about culture, about roots and culture. And it was through that roots music that I realized that I, I'm not Scottish after all, that I'm African. And you get, because Black History Month and that kind of stuff wasn't around at uh -huh. the time. You know, if you struggled with identity in those days in you the 70s and 80s, absolutely, you're not going to learn anything. You've got to learn yourself. And I was lucky that music, well, everyone was lucky that reggae music was about that kind of stuff, was really teaching you about culture. And it was through music that I realized that I'm not Scottish, that I'm, I'm African, <laughs> and, um, and about the history of who I am. So I chose the name Levi because within the Rastafari calendar, the third month is June. Um, it starts in April, right. and and June is Levi. Uh, so oh. April is Reuben, May is Simeon or Simon, and June is Levi. 
Um, so I chose the name because of the month that I, that I, my month of June. So you you chose to be a Rasta. Yeah. It wasn't that your parents, your parents or the rest of your family, that was well, your I, choice. I, I, well, I think I was inspired. I think that's more of the word because to, Rasta is one of the most difficult things to live, to live as. Because Rasta, nobody wants to give you a job and your hair is long and it's matty and you don't look mm. as smooth as, as everybody else is. So I think when you become a Rasta, you have to be inspired to be able to overcome all that kind of stuff. Mm. So Levi uh, is the month, is the third month yeah. of the calendar. Roots, is that referencing roots? Of the yeah, it's, roots yeah of the it's, ground, it's to be roots. strong. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's to be strong. I, I want it to be strong. I, so I, I chose, as opposed to, you know, my dad giving me the name of Keith Valentine Graham. You know, Keith Graham, a Scottish warlord, and Valentine Valentinius, the god of love. And I think that don't sound like me at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to find me through a faith. And, and that's what Rastafari is about. It's a way of life. It's not a religion. I mean, a lot of people get it confusing. But, but it's how you live. And I wanted to live with my name and be comfortable with who I am when you call the name Levi Roots. When I turn around, I feel that it was me. Somebody called Keith, and I'm thinking, it's a Scottish guy they call him. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Scottish, Scottish guys. Listening. I, I love old Keith, but not as me. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We, we, you've now reinvented yourself as as Levi Roots. Um, it, was it still predominantly music coming out of that stint uh, in prison? Um, and did I hear that you um, auditioned for UB40 as well? Was that? Yeah, yeah. You're joking. Yeah, yeah. well, really? you know, yeah, it's, it's part of the story. I, we, just before my sentence, we had a band called Matic 16. Mm -hmm. And we recorded an al album, Free Your Mind, nominated for a mobile awards and everything and we were like really coming strong in Brixton as a Brixton band and we were performing one time in Brixton Town Hall and Earl Faulkner the bass player for UB40 yeah. was in the audience and he came backstage and says guys you know we're forming the band UB40 uh, come come you know come and have a listen down Birmingham so all three of us three of us in the band Patrick and Buttons and myself two brothers that plays on section Thought great and just as we about the following couple of weeks to, to go down to, for this most changing things in life, bang, that's when I got in trouble. Mm -mm. And wow. I spent the next time years the in grand. prison. So this was that first thing. Yeah. This was, oh wow. And every aeroplane that went overhead while I was serving my time, I imagine Patrick and Buttons, my, my old two oh. friends, are with UB40, traveling with Sharon Stone, oh. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and I, I spent the time, I spent the time, and they joined UB40. So they are the two on guys that you see oh. with it in the band. That, that wow. was my band, Matic, and that, that was, you know, that was the dream for me to go to that audition. I say they're going to inspire you or break you. Well, as I said, no things as mistakes is feedback, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it inspired me because I, I came out again when I came out that I wanted to be bigger than that. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted the name Levi Roots, you know, to, to be everywhere. And I had a plan. I had a plan to do that because I had the sauce. I had my, my, my grandma's knowledge of cooking. And I came out and thought that I'm going to merge these two things which I'm most passionate about, music and food. I'm going to put them together as opposed to choosing one, which music was always the number one thing for me. I thought I was going to make it on top of the pops and did the big thing. It never happened. So I thought instead of putting down that dream, it's just merge plan A and plan B together. And that's when the magic starts to happen. 
Right, guys, another massive shout out to one of our sponsors. Now, I know if you're a boxing fan, you have definitely seen Wow Hydrate knocking around. These guys do an incredible range of health drinks uh, to prop up your sporting ventures. You have the electrolyte mix in multiple different flavors to help with rehydration, and also your protein mix, which contains collagen, which will help for recovery. Now, listen, if the likes of Tyson Fury is drinking these things then it must be a pretty good drink but don't take it from tyson take it from me go down into the description click wowhydrate.com and check them out and buy some for yourself keep going with that training with wow hydrate and thanks so much to wow hydrate for sponsoring this podcast it takes an unbelievable amount of resilience to go through that and come out with a plan um like you have and I guess let's get into that then. So you come out of prison, you, you have this source that you, you want to, um, to to create. And to, did you already have the plan from in, from in there? Yeah, was, inside, yeah. yeah. You, you, you've yeah. been figuring all of that out. Yeah. How did you go about it? Take us through that. What what did, what did Levi do? Yeah, well, well, the first thing, as I said, is to find the market. And as mm -hmm. I was itching a bit earlier on, I, I thought it would have been a nice, easy thing for me because it's a Caribbean sauce. And I thought, like, great, you know, everyone's going to love it. Spend all my cash in getting that first batch going. But when it bombed, for me, it was now about knowing that it wasn't a bad product mm -hmm. because I was doing it at the carnival for many years. And people loved it then. But carnival yeah. was only once a year. But I, I judge the fact that people were buying it, but it wasn't Caribbean people that were buying the sauce at the carnival. Because as you know, not in the carnival is not just about Caribbean mm -hmm. people, it's people from around the world. And and that's what I was getting at my stall. And and I had named the stall the Levi Roots Restaurant. Mm -hmm. And and again, that, nice. made, <laughs> that made me know that Good. branding had yeah. something really special to do with things. So giving the sauce the name Reggae Reggae Sauce, for me, that was the key moment because it linked in the music and and the food together and finding the market the mainstream market so there i was in the shires singing the the sauce song to a lot of crowd and and uh there's a lady in the crowd and and she waited until we finished and everything she came over and she says well levi you know it's great love the sauce love the song i'm from a tv program called dragons then would you like to be on the show and she took out a business card and gave it to me mm. and i'm i'm wow. just like looking at the business card i'm thinking what the fuck is this dragons then <laughs> <laughs> never saw the show Never heard of it. I thought it was, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And I'm oh, thinking, yeah. damn, there's no way they're <laughs> going to get me to be chewing on kangaroo testicles <laughs> and things. So I'm giving the lady back the business card and telling her, sorry, as a Rastaman, I just can't, you know, do these type of things and giving her back the card. And she says, no, Levi, you know, if, do take the card. And if somebody does tell you about Dragons then, then do give us a call. And I took the business card and I went home. And it's with my kids when I got home that day. My kids normally, they, they put these cards that you collect through these yeah. seminars and stuff. And, and my daughter saw this BBC card and she was my old seven kids jumping up and down, you know, Dad, Dragons then, because they watch it. And so I was like, what the hell is this Dragons then? And they said to me, but whatever you do, Dad, don't take that bloody guitar on the show. Right. <laughs> it seems like everybody was fearing of this guitar of the song and stuff, but I wanted to do it. I remember that episode <laughs> really well. Um, between that card being handed to you then and you walking out there with your guitar, ready to perform your reggae source song to the Dragons, how, what was the time frame between those two things? Well, it, the, 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 the event that I saw the lady was in August. Mm -hmm. And by December, I was invited into the BBC to do a screen test. 
because I had told them that I wanted to sing this song and nobody had ever sang on the show before. So they were a little bit funny about it. I don't think everybody had ever done a screen test for something they yeah. Yeah. So they invited me and I had to go in and sing the song so they could dissect the lyrics to see that there's, the, there's no profanities yeah, or anything yeah. like that within the lyrics. So that was in December. And by the end of December, January, I was in the show recording. Recording, but I... Getting to Dragon's Den was another scenario because I couldn't even afford to get to Dragon's Den. Um, the morning going to the show, we looked through our tins because, again, we spend everything to make a batch to do the Dragon's Den. Couldn't afford the taxi fare to get there. I rang the taxi rank that morning um, to ask him how much it was to take me from Brixton to London Bridge where it's been filmed. And they said about 15 quid. And me and the kids looked through our tins and everything, and we found about 12 quid. Um, and I couldn't take the bus because I had the guitar mm-hmm. and the sauces and everything. So we thought, damn, I'm going to phone that fucking taxi and, and skank the taxi as yeah. we go. Yeah, absolutely. So I called the taxi, got in it, and I had to give him a full story when I got to the day you know, yeah. with my guitar and wow. stuff. And he let me off. He took the 12 quid. And I went in and um, didn't know how I was going to get home, Johnny. But the BBC sent me home in a taxi mm. after slaying the dragons and um, doing the most amazing So thing. from that day, was it overnight success? Within three weeks, I had a call back from Justin King. He was the chief of Sainsbury's who did the deal with us at, that we signed six months exclusive to Sainsbury's when we first came out the den. And um, So he saw you through the show? He saw through the show. Peter gave him a call, yeah. as your as your 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 mentor should do. He's uh-huh. got a nice fat red book. Mm-hmm. He makes a few calls. He called Justin. Says Justin, did you see Dragons? Then I want to bring Levi to come and see you. I had left the kids at home in, at that time. We were doing sixty seven bottles every time we did a batch in a in a Dutch pot that my mom had given me. Yeah. Sixty seven bottles only. So we're seeing Justin and Peter and I have a chat with him, and I'm like really worried, thinking that I've only left doing sixty five bottles at home. I'm saying to Peter, be careful of the numbers that he's ordered, because I'm thinking that please God, don't let him order anything over sixty seven bloody bottles, because <laughs> we're gonna be in trouble. Justin's come out and said that, Levi, could you please deliver 350,000 bottles of sauce? That was your first order? The very first order. Three quarter of a million bottles of sauce Uh, from uh. Sainsbury's. Six months exclusive. The next call that I had from Sainsbury's three weeks after, three or four weeks after, was that reggae reggae sauce is outselling Heinz tomato ketchup. Just, just, just let's just back up. A I bit. know I need to fill up my chair. Let's back up a bit. So, so you're 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 bottling 65, 67 bottles. Sixty-seven so how bottles. How did you manage to bottle? Well, good question. Really good question. It's called licensing, because at first we thought that well, like I was saying, I was a bit worried. How are we going to produce the amount that we think that the public will demand? Because we were just gauging that the public. Yeah are going to like me when the when the show actually come comes out um but yeah nobody could fathom how you know how it was so for us it's not to build a factory which is what i first went into the den the mm-hmm. idea to do is open to get the finance so i could build a factory with my family and do a real family organically thing and start small and build as it come but i think the demand from the public sort of put that dream to one side that you have to get this product out there now. And the only way we could do that is through licensing. You know, it's through what's called outsourcing. 
So when you've built the brand already, then you can reach out to any any company. So so, so you so let me get it right. So you own the you own the product, the the ingredients, the measurements, and everything, yeah. the site and everything. So you then go to another company, say the other company, right? Yeah. I want you to do this, put this together. Absolutely. So therefore, you've got to pay them up front. No, no, because the brand is so powerful. You take a cut. Yeah, but but it was your first. It was your first leg. Yeah, you still don't. Well, if I the brand is powerful enough, or if the product TV. is good enough, yeah. the the company will want to do everything. And obviously, Sainsbury's would have had some kind of inspir uh, in 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 influence over. Yes, uh, because shelf space is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, if if that if it ties up, whereas Sainsbury's is up for it. And the company is doing the production is up for it. That's when the magic the magic happens. Okay, fast forward. You're out. And, you're, you're out being ketchup. Yeah. I love ketchup. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Daddy sauce. HP sauce. And you can imagine when I, I just thought to myself when the news came. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to be a black rasta man from Brixton and having yeah. the, the the sauce out selling the number one sauce? But you can because business doesn't belong to anybody. Anyone can do it. And that's what it proves to me at that point. It's there. a great story. Is, is this nationwide or you did, did you hit London first and then boom, all over? Right across Sainsbury's stores. It was exclusive to Sainsbury's for that first six months. And then once that six months were done, the machine even started to get bigger I because then we say. rolled out to Tesco's and to to, ev to everyone else. And, and and I'm so proud wherever. I mean, I, I've got this bracelet here to remind me. I'm showing you this bracelet. I brought this bracelet in a place called the, the Sound of Mall, which is like the Mall of Kintyre where uh -huh. you know, Paul McCartney's thing. We're one of the most remotest places in Scotland. I've gone there to do a bit of filming and there was a shop selling my sauce. And that wow. said to me that, you know, if you can reggae <laughs> sauce can reach into those places, then I've got to feel proud of it. So it's, it's been a massive journey for me and I can't thank the public enough for, you know, for supporting the brand in the way can, that they Can are. I ask you, what was the first thing you treated yourself to. That's easy. Not your family. <laughs> yeah. Not your family. No, I mean, you. Yeah, it was Oswald <laughs> I went into my favorite <laughs> store. Yeah. When you started with I, the I started, started with the Oswald because again, I, 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 I knew what was happening to me at the time because again, sometimes when you hover above yourself because of the community, when you're doing things for the community, you know how they feel. And I knew this wasn't just for me, Johnny. You know, this, this was for the community. So at this time you've got seven kids. Uh, yeah, and the business all of a sudden taking off. Yeah. The music is 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 there, but it's just it's not. Yeah, it's just letting you letting you tick over and live, yeah. and now yeah. this blows up. And now this blows up. Yeah, and I go in and I invest in my first Oswald Botanx suit because, like I was saying, I think it was important that I think that this wasn't just for me. This is for the community. This is for the first time. Like, I, I mean, when I was on the den, like, it only took me back to the days of Ru Rudolph Walker mm -hmm. and Love Thy Neighbor and all this thing like that when they saw rare to see a black man doing something different on telly. Mm -hmm. Back then it was about comedy, but where I was concerned, it was the first time somebody was doing something other than kicking a ball or running fast. Yeah. And yet everybody was ringing around saying, watch the TV, <laughs> Levi's on TV, and it looked like he's going to lose. Well, where, where you've, wow. got to, you've got to look at the BBC and say the BBC took a risk. They, they took a they, risk they actually yeah you know so you gotta you gotta give respect for that one no absolutely and i've had a fantastic time you know it really has been and and again but i think the most important thing is the relationship between peter jones and myself i i hasten to had that that's been the key within the cog because when he invested it was the magic moment because if it was any other investor that 
stayed with me. I, I think this would have been come a cropper. It would have been one of those that, yes, it sold in Sainsbury's and everything, but it's not a product that's going to last 16, 17 years selling at the top of Caribbean food. I think that's really down to the partners that you have. Mm. And, and I've got to say that Peter, that relationship that we've managed to, a weird relationship of a six foot seven tall ex-tennis player billionaire and a raster man with three foot long dreadlocks from Brixton. That's, that's the picture that you've got to say of us. It's not one that you would imagine, but it has become a beautiful relationship. Who, who, who was your team? Because because I'm thinking you've got lawyers, uh, merchandisers, you've got... Who is your team? So you, yeah, the stories you're telling me, I'm thinking, <laughs> who's giving you the, the ideas? Yeah, Lord of mercy, John. You know, I only employ one person. One, my PA. One. Wow. I have a lawyer, yes, Taja Picton Howell, which has been great, you know, been fantastic. But the, the company that we've had over 50 products on the brand, anything from a All range down of to you. sources. The book stops with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything we've written. I've written nine books, you know, run my TV show, Caribbean Food Made All Easy. All down to you again. Absolutely. The brand is Levi Roots, and, and hence, we don't have to have many people working for us. I just have Maria, my PA, who does my diary, and um, the rest is, um, is organic. Wow. Can I, um, yeah. Can I ask, because, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating story. I mean, taking young you living back in rural Jamaica, ending up living with your grandma when your parents left, and then coming over to, to London, to Brixton, fish out of water so to speak dealing with all the racism and then going into having the turbulent uh, relationship with your dad and then going into the prison missing out on the on the music um but you mentioned that your grandmother taught you to cook so you had your love of your grandmother and cooking and you also had music and then it all comes full circle where you create this brand that's based around music and food um and it blows my mind to stay inspired through everything that you've gone through to be able to come out and make this product. Do you, do you find that your grandmother was an inspiration to this whole journey and that's what's pushed you through to make this product? Well, you know, you've got me a bit emotionally when, when you come that, that direction because when I think about as a boy when I left her, she was my haven. You know, at the age of 10, 11, when my brothers and sisters knew that they were coming. They were much more older than myself. And, and for me then, it was a very dangerous time for me as a child. When I look back then and see any child who's been sort of disenfranchised from your parents. and, and, and So without my grandma being the person who she was, I know I would have been in a lot of trouble. I, I really would have. There was other things wrong with me as well too as a child that, that would have even made it even more difficult for me to survive. So to have her protect me within that time, but then being pulled away from her and then not having the chance to see her again um, because she died maybe when I was about 16, so maybe four, four or five years after I've left her. It, it was the most tragical thing for me. So doing the sauce and giving that story to her mm. and, and the backstory of the sauce and, and she everything. she better. Yeah, was, was one way for me to, to kind of deal with the, the passing of her but yet to to to, to pay the respect um that this is not me doing it even though it is me doing the sauce but the inspiration really in everything that i am with the food and the books when i write these books and everything i go right back to my grandma and what she would do 
and then just write it like how she would say it and how she's doing. So she's played a massive part in my life. And with her, there is absolutely no way I would have survived. I probably would have just survived the trip coming over. But not having the education did, as did, I did, did then. Did you fly or was it a ship? I flew on my you own flew. and I All came right. on my own. I was 11 in those days and alone on the plane. And then arriving and think that maybe I'm going to be accepted by mom and dad and it's going to be wonderful and everything. And But yet when I came over, I met a monster in my father. Mm. And, and that monster um, sort of ruled my life for a long time. And it wasn't until when I got, I got rid of him by mm. leaving home and went to the music, as I said, that I finally freed myself of him. So that would have been a traumatic period of your life. So, so you talking to that, to young kids now around that age, you know, because everybody struggles, everybody yeah. uh, is, is different. What advice, what advice would you possibly give them? Because you, you've, got to, you've got to find some kind of inner strength yeah. to get from there to here. In between is the hard bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Johnny, I've always said that Peter Jones never taught me to be an entrepreneur overnight. If you can remember, as I said, the sauce was out selling Einstein tomorrow to catch up within weeks of me being in Dragon's Den and then having to handle the fame and everything that came like whoosh in front of me within a matter of, of months and, and being able to deal with that. So I've always said that I was always me. Like many young kids now within my local area of Brixton, you are you, you are capable, but you need somebody to come in there to to, as it's to open their red book, make a few calls for you, or point you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. They don't have to teach you anything at all. You have a natural skill within yourself. I think my natural skill was always there. But is that thing is that, will someone like a Peter be coming around Brixton where I am on the front line, where I live in the no-go area? Absolutely not. And it's the same thing like a lot of these kids who are in these local areas right now, who are capable. But are people going in like a Peter, uh, mm. like an investor or somebody that will go in and, and change these kids' lives? No. And that's why it's taking so long. And I talked to you about my young son now, Christopher, he's only 10. And it, it pains me to think that one day I may have to move away from Brixton, my mm. locality, because I want to give him a better chance to be able to get there than what it was for me. It took me until I was 48 before I, I was on Dragon's Den but, and but, make but, my but life maybe, better. maybe, just maybe, you went Peter. I, I, I say, I call it, mine was Brendan. Yeah. You always need a Brendan, you always need yes, a Peter, somebody to guide absolutely. <clears throat> so, so maybe now your position in life is to be Peter for somebody else. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and I, be, I, be a guide for someone else, your yeah. son, the kids around. Yeah. They look I, at you and they think, what? You didn't just land there. You went through struggles up and down, yeah. on, on losing your grandmother, being in Jamaica, being taken away to England, being somewhere you didn't want to go to, in a school where you saw racism on the right one side yeah. and, and being trendy on the left side. So all those stories would inspire so many youngsters, some way, somehow, or click, even if it changes one, yeah. open the minds of one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I've dedicated my life to exactly that. Ever since I came out of the den, because I realized how we've set the business, um, that the business runs in its own, it's all licensed out and it all runs itself. I create the recipes. What else do I do? I give myself back to the community. So I go back to the prisons and the schools and the university and the educational institution. I've done hundreds of prisons, literally been back to nearly almost all prisons mm. within this country. And I say that with confidence because I know what my work has done over the past 16 years. I've been to thousands of schools around the country over the past 16 years on the Levi Roots School of Life tour, which we've been doing ever since that first year. And back to the shires and, and do the whole thing. 
the film, which I'm hoping that will be coming out soon, the Levi Root story, I'm really hoping that will actually tell the story and you'll be able to inspire people all over again, a bit like what it did to kids who write to me now who are doing their dissertations on my life, which makes me really proud to say that young kids now are learning about what I did and how I, my journey was and using that to be able to forward their own self. So it's an immensely proud that I'm lucky to be able to have the time and the business is set in a way that I can do all this. Because after all, I do it because I enjoy it, Johnny, not because I have to do it. I, I, I really could sit at home and just do write my recipes and everything else. But the diary is full of schools. I mean, Maria, my PA, is just absolutely uh, bombardment with going back into school. It's a great feeling, though, isn't it? Is it's, it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. Can can we talk about the film then? Because um, yeah. it's written by a good friend of mine, Nick Moorcroft, yeah. right? He's writing the film. I mean, listening to everything about your story, I can understand why that has to be a movie. Um, and there's something really powerful about being able to immortalize that into something that's going to be there forever. Once that's been created and put into film, that's, that's going to be able to be watched by anybody for a long, long yeah. time. And you've got a hell of a story there. How does it feel for you to be creating something that you're going to sit and watch back and know that it's the story of your life and know that it's going to help people. It's the most amazing feeling. It really is. And, and again, I, I'm always surprised by things, fabulous things that's happened to me, you know, I, always. It, it still doesn't sink in, it doesn't seem like an everyday thing. And, and imagine someone saying they're making a movie about your bloody life. It's, it's just fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I'm smiling every day. I smiled this morning when I had a call from Nick and telling me how, you know, close we are. Um, to start filming pretty soon. And, and I says, I think the greatest reward for me with the movie would be able to tell the story all over again so that I can still give that message that if Levi Roots can do it, then surely, you know, surely that a lot of people have more of a chance who believe that the cards are against them, you know, who believe that they're disenfranchised and, and, and nobody's going to come around but perhaps you need to go out and look for it. It's a bit like what I did. So who, it's a great who, opportunity. Who would you have play you? Well, there's been a few names been called so far, Johnny. Yeah, we're allowed to go here. <laughs> well, well, I, I think I've been sent about 15 names. Oh, you've got a choice. You've I've got, got, a cho I've got choice, uh, which I'm looking at now. And this couple, I mentioned a few because they're my bridging and I would love to see um see them get the part, but I'm not sure if they will get it. But <laughs> we're talking to Ashley Walters. We're looking at Ashley oh, Walters right. and, and, yeah, and Kano yes. from Top Boy. They're, yeah. they're two good names. Wow. I, yeah. I can mention that we are looking at. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I saw Ashley a couple of years ago and I said to him that I'm, I'm doing the movie. Nice and this time guy. I had nice my guy. restaurant in Battersea because yeah. he's a Battersea boy, so solid crew and all that kind of stuff. So it would be nice to tie in if we get him to play a part or something. But he would have to probably have a nice dreadlocks or something. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, that is good. Yeah. Well, listen, um, that's an absolutely unbelievable story and I'm so glad you've come on here and, and told us that because like I said, this podcast is all about, you know, fighting on the inside is, is that fight within that fight that's not just physical fighting and boxing but learning from people that have yeah. gone through fights and struggles and come out the other end and all the lessons that we can learn in between. And I think your story encapsulates everything we're trying to get across so, so bloody well. Do you not can, think, can I just John? ask one more question? Yeah. How often do you go back home? Not back home because this is home now. How yeah. often do you go back to Jamaica? Uh, I'm so lucky. It's been a brilliant time for me. I, three, four times a year. Wow. Um, because I write 
when I'm writing, I like to go back and, and write there. Have they believe the success of the source? They, they have because I, the other day I was walking through and it's in the script. Actually, I told Nick and he used to laugh so much that he had it in the script. I was I was driving to Clarendon, going back to, to where I'm from, and there's a toll road that you have to go through on, on the Clarendon Highway. And the people who work in toll roads are just normal Joe blogs who don't really know it. They probably don't have TVs. Mm -hmm. So I've driven up to the toll road and I've looked up and handed handed the money to the lady that was in there and she's looked down at me in the car and says hold on a minute dear are you the pepper man from England <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I knew that I arrived because yeah. if someone can in a toll booth yeah. and recognize you and as the pepper man from England <laughs> in Jamaica then oh. you know you've arrived in Jamaica because normally if you whatever you do fantastic from you leave Jamaica them not see you as a you're a foreigner. foreigner. So for me, it's just brilliant that they've accepted because you have to be a success. If you do go away and you become a success and then you bring it back to the people because I had a store in Jamaica for about five years in Devon House. Mm -hmm. So I brought back my success to Jamaica, paying Jamaican tax and employing Jamaican people. And I thought that was the reasons why they recognize me now as, as one as they. So saying that, are you the pepperman from England? is perhaps one of the best things that I, I ever had nice. from an unknown person in jamaica <laughs> that's unbelievable well actually do you know what this is a boxing podcast and i have to just before we close out levi yeah let's say who's your favorite heavyweight at the moment yes. and who's your pound for pound number one pound for pound number one i start from there it has to be joe louis okay i i say joe louis old school yes old school because joe louis in those days faced everything that was there and he was a proper gladiator mm -hmm. as i talked about in the first instance i love gladiator type boxing so i would put at my top three i would put him as top i would definitely put muhammad ali as number two because that says this the inspiration also maybe not so much the boxing i think joe louis would have slightly overdo muhammad within the boxing but the cleverness of of muhammad ali would perhaps get a draw if, if possible. So gotcha. very clever boxer, Muhammad Ali. So he'd be a number two. And number three has to be my man, Lennox Lewis. Mm. Within yeah. the, with it, with it. But all time around, Floyd Mayweather, I would say, are unbeaten so champion. So the, the three of them, agency, history yeah. makers, Joe yeah. Lou, the first black, yeah. black man to play on the PGA golf tour ever. The first black man to do that. Ali, rest is history, Ali, how he's made a difference. And the success of Lennox Lewis, because yes, he went under the British man. flag. Yes. These guys did so much successful things outside of boxing to put themselves in a Guinness Book of Records and make part of history. Yeah, Michelle, yeah. thank you so much, man. Three legends, and we must say you're a legend in your own right, Levi, and it's thank been absolutely so awesome <laughs> you coming on here, mate. Thank you so much for the brilliant, conversation. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Right, guys. Well, I mean, yeah, that 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 was incredible. I uh, hope you really enjoyed that story as much as we did. And I mean, what else is there is to say? That was Levi Roots, and this is Fight on the Inside, and we will see you next week. Do you need a stunt man? Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for him to try and get in on that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd be lucky if I get in. You know, I'm hoping that I get a small part, like you know, Stan Lee in in the Marvel movies, oh, plays a, a bumbling idiot somewhere yeah, yeah, yeah. in a little oh, corner yeah. for two seconds. I'll be the narrator. Uh, be that narrator. You've got that, to push for a cameo, Lee, man. This is Rocket Audio.